Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Hal Hodson, technology correspondent at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. Coming up, how a human liver can be kept alive outside the body and why it could mean a boost for organ donations. When it arrives um, for transplant, the surgeons can look at the interface and see how the uh, liver has been functioning over the previous 5, 10, 12 hours. Also, how work is underway to curb the often deafening sound of sonic booms. The sonic boom you really need to get on top of if we're ever to see supersonic travel return and for aircraft to be used over land masses. And the theory that there might be universal signals in music which can transcend cultural boundaries. You and I and other folks from the Western world, when played music by hunter-gatherers that is meant to express love, are really pretty clueless about the fact that it's meant to be expressing love. But to start, how a human liver can now be kept alive outside the body. It's hoped it could mean a real boon for organ donation. Until now, a donated liver has been kept on ice for up to a maximum of 12 hours. But an Oxford professor of engineering has come up with a new way to store them. I'm joined by The Economist healthcare correspondent, Natasha Loder. Hi, Natasha. Hello. Hello. So you write in your story that this approach relies on a special kind of box known as a metra, which is the Greek word for womb. Can you tell us how this works? The liver's taken and it's um, hooked up to a lot of plastic tubes and pumps and sensors. And essentially uh, what the box does is circulate warm blood through the liver. It's a sort of cocktail of chemicals and warm blood. And, uh, you know, the circulation essentially keeps the liver alive and functioning. If you don't know anything about traditional organ transplant, what happens is the organs are kept on ice. And in the case of the liver, you know, the the organ sort of gradually starts to deteriorate as the sort of products of metabolism do start to accumulate. Because although, you know, functions are sort of slowed down in a, a cooled organ, they're not completely halted. So essentially, what this box does is it it keeps the liver alive. And what's really incredibly cool about it is that Because the device is constantly monitoring the function of the liver and sort of reporting that back, um, and it's displayed in a graphical user interface on the front of the box, when the the liver arrives in this box, which has wheels, so you can just wheel it along, when it arrives um, for transplant, the surgeons can look at the interface and see how the uh, liver has been functioning over the previous 5, 10, 12 hours. And so you know exactly what's in the box. Gosh. So this metra, these metras, are they being used widely? Is this a a first time? What's the status? So they've been developing these, um, and it's being developed by Dr. Cusius and also a man called Peter Friend at the University of Oxford. And they started in the 1990s, and there were huge hurdles to overcome, you know, to do with 
the sort of fluid flow, uh, biomechanics, and uh, the kind of uh, measurements they'd need to take from from the liver and sort of what's the chemical cocktail that you put through the liver. And once you develop a sort of device like this in, in health, you have to kind of go about proving that it's a better option. So you have to kind of test it out in the field. And that's been happening um, sort of slowly with sort of small limited trials of 20 to 30 people. And in the next few weeks, I'm expecting the results of a much larger trial to be announced, which essentially shows what, what exactly the metric can do and how it can work in a little bit more detail. We know from trials that this box works. It's also been approved for use to store livers for 24 hours. And there are now sort of 25 of these boxes out in the wild being used all around the world, actually, at the moment. So um, we can definitely expect to see more of them. But what we're seeing is countries buying one or two of these boxes for their transplant centres and you know, testing them out and sort of seeing how they function. And one might imagine if they're as successful as their um, inventors expect and hope that more and more would be sold. So metros can keep a liver alive for longer than putting it on ice or or keep it viable. Can a metro be used for other kinds of organs? No, in that the metro is just the name of the box that they've designed for the liver. But the company, which is called Organox, would like to do other organs. They are looking at kidneys, they're looking at pancreas, but there are also other companies um, that are trying to do something similar and have actually gotten a little bit further uh, with other organs. So it's now possible to keep a heart and a lung fully alive and functioning outside the body in a sort of similar sort of device. It's not called a metra. It's perfused organ transplants, and that means that they're perfused with blood. The liver is a very complicated organ, and, you know, keeping it alive and functioning and producing bile is has been, you know, quite a challenge for, for this company. So it's a great achievement. Livers is enough. Do do you think this is going to help a lot with sort of the, the logistical problems of scheduling transplant surgeries? Because I know that's a big difficulty in cold chains and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's going to help enormously from kind of really tangible things such as you can keep livers for longer and livers that might have been rejected or that look a bit dodgy because they've been kept on ice for a long time can be actually put onto the device and tested it. You can take an organ like a liver that's been on ice and you've no idea whether it works or not. You can plug it into the uh, metra and then you can find out how well it's functioning and you can help it uh, to recover. But there are also some really intangible benefits to this. And, and, you know, know, there's a lot of stress on surgeons who don't really know whether these organs are going to function. So if you're listening to this, is this good news if you're waiting for an organ transplant or a liver transplant, Natasha? Yeah, it's really great news. I mean, at the moment, people who are waiting for a liver transplant in countries that have these metros won't know whether they're going to get a a warm donated liver or a cold one. In fact, they'll probably get a cold one because that is how most transplants are done um, at the moment. But, you know, as these devices come online, you can imagine there are going to be more organs available just because of the logistics of the whole thing and because we can recover many organs that we just can't use at the moment because we don't know what condition they're in. So good news all round. Okay. My thanks to The Economist healthcare correspondent, Natasha Loder. Thank you, Hal. Next, a new idea for making sonic booms quieter. (laughs) 
Despite Concorde's demise back in 2003, the idea of building a successor to it has never quite gone away. Aircraft makers review the idea from time to time. Indeed, a number of groups are said to be working on small executive jets intended to travel faster than the speed of sound. The trouble is, something else from the days of Concorde has refused to go away. The shockwave, known as a sonic boom, that emanates from a supersonic aircraft as it goes through the speed of sound. I'm joined by the Economist's Innovation Editor, Paul Markilli. Hi, Paul. Hi. So, what exactly is the sonic boom, and what does it? What does a sonic boom mean at ground level? What are its effects? A sonic boom is caused really by the aircraft going through the sound barrier and the air particles failing to get out of the way of certain bits of it fast enough, which causes a big pressure build-up and uh, shock waves which coalesce and emanate all over the show and eventually end up on the ground as a boom as mm. the thing goes uh, goes fast. Now, that's a, that was a problem for Concorde because uh, it rattled windows, frightened animals and things, and it restricted that aircraft to subsonic speeds over land, mm. which meant it could only just fly across water and not that great a range in any event. But flying over land is very thirsty for an aircraft designed to go fast because you need to throttle it back and it guzzles fuel, so very inefficient. So the sonic boom you really need to get on top of if we're ever to see supersonic travel return and for aircraft to be used over land masses. So what's happening today to try and fix this problem? Well, we've got a lot more aerodynamics knowledge now, particularly through computational fluid dynamics and big science like that. There is an idea you can employ some of this new knowledge to carry out design tweaks on a supersonic aircraft, which will quieten bits of it. Now, NASA is doing this at the moment, and in 2021 hopes to fly a small aeroplane that has, for instance, a, a very long, thin nose, which will penetrate the air better and hopefully reduce the sonic boom there and have its engines blended into the bodywork. All of that, they think, may reduce the sonic boom to something like a low thud. A sonic thud. A sonic thud. Okay, okay. However... There is an aerospace engineer in California and a group of colleagues who think that they can actually get this to almost disappear completely by taking these modifications even further. Wow. What, can, can you tell us a little more about what they're doing? Yeah, one of the things they're doing is, in, is having the engines mounted well forward of the wing. That could be on a boom or on the side of the uh, fuselage. The shockwaves from the wing then would be reflected off the exhaust plume that's coming out of the back of the jet engines. And that plume as well could be uh, tinkered with to have a slower-moving layer of air at the bottom of it, which would help quieten things down further. So that and a number of other tweaks around the system, they think, and they've had some independent tests carried out using 3D modelling, could make this a very quiet aeroplane indeed. Is the idea to reflect the noise up instead of down? Is, is that what's going on with it? Uh, yeah, a lot of it is reflecting it up as opposed to being down and then also absorbing it and bouncing around, basically making these waves, uh, the sonic boom waves, bounce off into other directions that, rather than into the ground. Yeah. So like the Sydney Opera House, but for shutting up in the sky instead of being it's that kind of idea. It's boxing up the boom. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Now, does this mean we're going to see supersonic aircraft coming back? Is that happening now? It's a long way from that. The next step for this team is to carry out tests in a wind tunnel. And then if they're successful, there'll also be the idea of building a demonstrator aircraft. And then, of course, you've got to convince uh, 
manufacturers and airlines that they want to invest in these things. You know, will they will they be profitable? What will they cost? Will the ticket price be approachable? So it's a long way to it, but you can start to see the steps towards a return of supersonic travel. And it is indeed a, and a very alluring idea because the ability to travel, say, from New York to Los Angeles in under two hours rather than a really tedious six hours, that's quite attractive if you could get the price right. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. OK, my thanks to The Economist Innovation Editor, Paul Markilli. Thanks very much for coming on, Paul. Thank you, Al. Cheers. If you have any thoughts on a possible boom time ahead for organ donation or whether supersonic travel will ever return to the skies do please put them in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Finally, the idea that there might be universals in music that can transcend cultural boundaries has generally been met with scepticism by music scholars. Yet new research provides evidence that musical meanings do permit the communication of simple ideas between people who don't share a common language. I'm joined by The Economist science correspondent, Matt Kaplan. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing all right, Hal. How are you? Great. So who has been doing this research and and, and what have they found? So the researchers doing this work are based out of Harvard. And one of the key questions that they were exploring was whether or not music is able to send signals to people who don't even speak the language of the songs in question. They had found uh, a, a couple of labs have noticed over the years working with animals that The vocalizations made by an animal can even be identified by other species based upon the amount of bass in the animal's call. And to a certain extent, that makes sense because if you're a really big animal, then you're going to tend to have more bass in your call. And that means you're probably bigger and tougher and probably worth avoiding if at all costs. So the theory was, could this sort of thing transfer across in music? And sure enough, these folks took songs that were sung by folks in hunter-gatherer societies, so sung in languages that you and I definitely don't understand. And they played 14-second excerpts of them to a whole bunch of volunteers from all over the world speaking all kinds of languages. And they asked them to categorize them in a number of ways. Okay. And so... Were any of these, you know, musical styles that they that they they played to the volunteers were they more difficult than others? No, the music wasn't more difficult. But some of the so the categories that the participants were asked to classify the music as were: you heard this fourteen second excerpt. Would you rate this as a lullaby? I mean, how strongly would you rate it on a six point scale as a lullaby? How strongly would you rate it on a six point scale as dance music? How strongly would you rate it as a love song or a song for healing someone from illness? And people went about this task of listening to the 14-second excerpt and then ticking on a box how far along is this, these six-point scales they would rate the music for various categories. And then the researchers looked at what categories the music actually fell into because they talked to the hunter-gatherers and said, what is this song used for? And they would say lullabies or healing the ill or expressing love for other people. And what was shocking is, you know, you have all these participants who don't speak the languages of the various hunter-gatherer tribes that the music was collected from. And the folks were able to largely agree that songs that were in fact lullabies for babies were lullabies for babies, even though they didn't understand a word of it. Same thing with dance music. The agreement was almost universal. This music is for dancing to And, of course, there's no linguistic understanding. With healing songs, the the connection was weaker 
but it was still there. And with love songs, what was amusing, perhaps, is that you and I and other folks from the Western world, when played music by hunter-gatherers that is meant to express love, are really pretty clueless about the fact that it's meant to be expressing love. <laughs> so going to sleep is universal, but love is not. <laughs> um, entirely possible. I mean, they've got some hypotheses behind why that is. One of them is that love songs tend to tell stories as opposed to actually being about expressing love. And sometimes love songs are about falling out of love as much as they are falling in love. And therefore, this kind of muddies the signal. Hmm. The other theory is that, hey, let's face it, love is complicated. And it, expressing meanings of love in song is not as easy as expressing oh, say, let's dance. And, and that, uh, th I thought that was pretty interesting. Does this mean that the, these musical signals, these signals in the music are somehow pre-language? That's an interesting thought. I, the researchers don't come straight out and say that. But you've got, I mean, a couple of the students who are working on this project are anthropologists at Harvard University under folks like Richard Wrangham, who's you know, top dog on thinking about how we came to develop cooking and other early activities. So I, I think just tracing who these researchers are, what groups are involved with this, hints that that's where they're going. Um, they don't have hard evidence that dancing music is in our genes and that we just know mm -hmm. that music is for dancing or two or that we just know the beat of a lullaby. But certainly these findings are going to lead to experiments that are going to directly explore that. And, and, and that'll be really cool. Interesting one to follow. So what can we can we do anything now that we know that there are some universal components of music? Are, you know, do are composers going to want to know about this? You know, that's an excellent question. I have no idea what composers are going to want to know about. Being not a composer, I'm really not sure. I imagine that we might see some crazy new game shows being developed that play hunter-gatherer music to people and say, so, is this a lullaby, dance music, for healing the ill or for expressing love? <laughs> and if you've read the paper, then you would know you probably shouldn't guess for expressing love because you wouldn't be able to detect it even if it came up and kicked you in the face. Because you'd be wrong because love is fickle and impossible <laughs> to determine. Are you speaking from personal experience? Not now? at all, not at all. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. My thanks to The Economist science correspondent, Matt Kaplan. Thank you, Hal. It's been a pleasure. And that is it for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's Economist or find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.